Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. Today we talk to Kushbu Shah, the editor-in-chief of The Fuller Project. Kushbu is a two-time Murrow Award-winning journalist who has produced for the BBC, NBC, and CNN, and been a managing editor for Georgia Public Broadcasting. She's reported and produced from Afghanistan, India, the West Bank, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, and Mexico. More recently, she reported on the killing of Ahmad Aubrey in Brunswick, Georgia, for The Guardian. The Fuller Project is an award-winning nonprofit newsroom doing groundbreaking reporting on women around the world. It was founded in 2015 by Christina Asquith and Xanthi Scharf. You can find it at fullerproject.org. Much of their work is done partnering with other organizations. All right, Kushbu, I gave a brief bio and an even briefer description of the site. That's how you can fill in the blanks. Can you give us a more extended version of who you are and what you do for the Fuller Project? Absolutely. Thank you for having me on today. So I can start with the Fuller Project. So as you mentioned, the Fuller Project is an independent nonprofit newsroom that reports on issues that affect women, which of course are all issues. I think sometimes, you know, we're here because I think sometimes women are put into verticals that you see, you know, in magazines or in sort of, or seen as a vertical. What we do differently is that we center women in our stories, whether they're sources or experts. We center the voices of those who are often unheard and whose stories remain untold in traditional forums. So, you know, where you might traditionally see women's stories covered in the lifestyle or culture, entertainment section, you know, we, our aim is to bring those stories to the front page of, of major publications. And so our starting point, though, what I really, really aim for our reporters to understand is that we report on women affected by the policy rather than those putting the policy into effect. That's where we like to start, which I know during the last four years, especially in the U.S., can be really hard to do when there was so much focus on politics and policy. And so as a way of, be, as a way of brief background, I began my career at the age of 24, the day after I um, handed in my dissertation for my master's, I flew to Afghanistan and I <laughs> I convinced the embassy in DC, the Afghan embassy, to give me a single entry system visa. And I said, I would, don't worry, I'll find a job. And I did. And I ended up spending two years in Afghanistan. I was lucky enough to work for Tolo TV, Moby Media Group, where I managed a team um, that worked on the research side of production. And I was able to work on programs such as Sesame Street for Afghanistan and the Afghan version of 24. That later led me to work for the BBC in London um, on similar kind of political programming in the West Bank and Afghanistan. And then I ended up in, uh, in Atlanta, my first job back home in the US and where I was lucky enough to cover elections, politics, 2016. I spent a lot of time in the Southeast covering race and identity, which last year, you know, we, we covered at length. And, and then I was, I was, I spent a, a year or two in Latin America and now I'm here. It's Women's History Month. So let's do a Women's History lesson right at the start. Who's Fuller in the Fuller Project? So the Fuller Project is named for the first woman correspondent in the 19th century and journalist to serve during wartime for a major American newspaper. And, and the reason our co-founders chose that name is because the Fuller Project was founded by the two women that you mentioned, Christina and Xanthi, while they were based in, in Turkey. So it was founded by a group of, of, war of female war correspondents. 
and now it's it's very broad based, covering many different issues, focused on exposing justice, raising awareness, and spurring impact through rigorously reported stories. You have a page devoted to pieces from 2020 that were impactful, one called Imagine Online School in a Language You Don't Understand, which sparked considerable discussion about the issue of having a child be schooled online who needs translation from the teacher. Another piece, The Pathologist, she confronts the virus from inside nursing homes, this one about a woman woman who is a doctor in Iraq who came to the U.S., and the process for her to become a doctor here is extremely burdensome. She eventually became a pathology assistant. The story wound up running in the New York Times. The governor of New Jersey saw it and helped her get her temporary license extended. She had interesting observations about nursing homes and medicine in the United States. So those are two from the past. More recently, February 26th, looking at your headlines, France in denial about domestic violence. Pandemic exposes exploitive conditions Filipino domestic workers face, and something specifically on your website about student moms dealing with childcare costs and student loan debt, and a rather alarming stat that last September, women in the United States collectively owe nearly two-thirds of all national student debt. With that, I ask you, how do you come up with the ideas for all these pieces? So we, you know, again, going back to centering women in these stories, or centering the issues that affect women, over the last year, it was really easy to see some of the holes in that, that we really were yearning to fill because of some of the experiences that we were having as well. One of them being childcare. You know, childcare sort of is covered, you know, by the numbers and how many women are leaving the workforce. But what we really wanted to do and what we're aiming to do is look at the topic from a 360 point of view. And so our reporter, Jessie Washington, I think you just referenced her story. She has been looking at it from all angles, from, from, the, the viewpoint of older childcare workers who maybe not might not have other training right now as they're losing their jobs, who have spent their careers setting up childcare centers in their homes. And now those have been closed and shut down for the better part of a year, what do you do? And that predominantly affects women of color, black and brown women. We have had another reporter look at the closures of childcare centers and in, in places like California with thousands of childcare centers. And again, Rika, who you mentioned, um, who did the reporting on learning, you know, homeschooling in a language that you don't understand for the New York Times, she looked at the issue of childcare in California for the Los Angeles Times. And it was really interesting that this is a really interesting story. The editor, who's really fantastic, we sent in our copy about childcare centers and he wrote back to all of us. Rick and I are both moms, um, young moms. And he says to us, I'm a dad. How come we don't talk about the parents in this? And it was like nine months into the pandemic, I think. And we, so Rick and I thought about it and we thought about how to respond. We said, no, we've been thinking about it for nine months. I think we really need to look at this from another point of view. And we understand what you're saying because we also are parents. And he actually came back to us a day later and said, okay, I hear you. You're right. And that story, when it published on a Sunday, had like half a million views. Are there international stories that you've done recently that you're particularly proud of that you could give us an example of and kind of tell us about? There are two that come to mind right away. Although this one is more of a U.S.-Mexico sort of a story. Tanvi Misra did a really great investigation, really important investigation for The Guardian. She came to me. Um, she had done some reporting for us before, previously on detention centers. And she said, Kushbu, I found at least 11 instances where U.S. newborn citizens have been removed from the U.S. back um, to Mexico without their birth certificates. So I said to her, 
well, <laughs> that's that's pretty important. If you let's let's take a look at the documents, and we went through the documents, worked on that piece. The Guardian published it. I think we she filed it to me on Wednesday. We went through it very thoroughly, and it was published by Friday, and it was third most read story on that site almost immediately. And it was, I mean, obviously, it's important for a number of reasons because when you think about the pandemic and the last year and what's sort of been going on under foreign policy and of course our own immigration policies, it can sort of be, it's really easy to forget every, like these 11 people, you know, we hear about broader impact. We think about, we hear about the return to Mexico program. We hear about the immigration bans, but you know, we're sort of looking for the places that where everyone else's attention has turned away from and, and, and really keeping an eye on these, on, almost every single person that's been affected by these policies. Another great one is that Louise Donovan worked on for AP, for our partnership with the Associated Press. She brilliantly profiled the connection between two women, one in Lesotho, which is a small landlocked country in Southern Africa, and a woman in a small town in California, both of whom have been affected by the pandemic and closures of malls in the US and and shopping and and the downturn in the economy and how that has affected the global supply chain so she documented their lives and what's happened over the past year as shopping centers are closed as a woman in lusutu was not able to retain her work in the factory where she was providing clothes to the malls and stores like jc penny in the us and you know it was we we got a lot of uh, feedback from that story telling us that they hadn't thought about how women were connected, even in this way, and that, you know, they had seen a story, and many people had seen a story like this before. I like the way that you're able to tie something that, that doesn't necessarily seem connected right away, like you're talking about. One thing that just hit me as we're, we're talking about this, a lot of the stories that you do are harrowing. Are there is there hope to be found in some of the pieces that you've done? That's a good question. It's a really good question. I think so. I, I hope that, you know, if it's not always evident in the actual story, that it comes from what you mentioned earlier about us as an organization, which is that, you know, we're hoping to hold the people accountable. We're hoping for, you know, the, the reason we tell these stories is to, to have impact either, you know, on individual lives or on, on in a broader sense policy. So I would look at it that way. Can, can you briefly explain uh, your partnerships? Yeah, so I think this is something that we do that's a little bit different than you would find in traditional traditional publications. I think sort of when people think of journalism, they think, hey, we're a bunch of competitive people. Whereas I'm sure you've noticed as well in recent years that the best sort of journalism comes from collaborations and partnerships. And so we, we work with newsrooms. We're, we're like any other newsroom. What we do is we will bring our expertise on a variety of topics um, and issues. We cover, for example, domestic violence as a beat, human trafficking as a beat, which I don't think you'll see, for example, in many other newsrooms. And we'll bring that sort of expertise. And for example, Luis, I mentioned Luis. She covers migrant domestic workers. I don't think anybody covers that in a traditional newsroom. I can't say that definitively, definitively but I'm pretty sure that's a very specific <laughs> beat. And so we'll bring that expertise to a newsroom built on the trust that we have these, with these newsrooms like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, the LA Times, San Francisco Chronicle, for example, and bring them stories that we can add that extra element, that gender angle, the, what the issues, how they're really affecting women 
And also what we try to do and what we're trying to do more of is less of that armchair parachute journalism where we fly in, fly out, which, you know, I did a lot of at CNN. So I'm guilty as well. But what we're trying to do is then if we're pitching a story and say someone has an expertise like police, migrant domestic workers, she will then also work with a local reporter on the ground and will partner not only with, say, the New York Times, but also an East African publication if that's where the migrant workers are, are based or coming from. So it's likely then that someone has probably seen the work of your reporters, but not necessarily known where it was coming from, like not known. It, your your website is not necessarily a stop for... Not yet. Not, not yet. Not okay. That, that's good to know. So who is the audience exactly that you're aiming for? Yeah, very bluntly, everyone. I think a lot of people think, okay, this is a story about women. It's probably for women. Part of the aim is to make sure, and I hope that this does not put us out of business one day, but that everyone can tell the stories as well as hopefully everyone is reading these stories. We also, I know people probably think instinctively that we also only employ women or people who identify as women, but we don't. We've actually had reporters who are men. We have currently some on staff and some freelancers that we work with as well. And so to that same extent, this reporting on is for everyone. I want, I, I would like you to read it. I would, I hope you are. I would like my husband to read it. I would like the average New York Times reader, if we have a story in, in one of their editions, to read it. I know that you're expanding too, right? Yeah, we have five jobs open right now. I know this is, it's rare, probably for a small nonprofit to have that many jobs and we'll have even more coming up in the next few months, hopefully. Um, we st- last year when I joined at the start of the pandemic, they had... I think we had three full-time staff. And now we have, in our newsroom, we have many, many more than that. And we're also hiring for five more roles. And also we've just hired six contributors just yesterday. Wow, that, that's impressive expansion, uh, especially at this time. Always good to hear people putting other journalists to work. I wanted to ask about, I know that a lot of people are instrumental in putting the site together. Can you just tell me about some of the other people on your staff? Absolutely. One name that you probably have not seen on the site recently, but that's because she is an incredible editor now, is Sophia Jones. She she joined the Floor Project at its inception in 2015. She was based in, in Turkey. And she has covered everything from the intersection of gender and climate to gender and inequality and race and health. And she's incredible. She She's done reporting for, for example, for National Geographic on the link between um, reproductive health care and climate change. Um, that was in Afghanistan. She's reported from Iraq. She's reported from all, all parts of Africa. She's just an incredible um, reporter. And that's what makes her um, a really great editor as well. Every, almost every international story that you see on our page, she's at a hand in. And I like to think that everything she does turns to magic. Can you take us through the process? And I realize this could be done in 20 minutes. I'm going to ask you to do it more like one or two. The process by which story goes from idea, from the writer, all the way through her to completion and handoff to another news source or a tandem effort with another news source, just something that you can explain process to us. It's funny that you ask. I just put this together for an editor that we just onboarded yesterday. So I actually have a process in mind. We, so we function like any other newsroom. And I'm sure you know that when you go to your editor to pitch or when you did, 
they don't want to hear just a theme. They want your idea. They don't want just idea. They want story, right? So they, so when our reporters come to us, they have done their pre-reporting and a couple of interviews. They, for the most part, know who their character or their main, the person, their narrative vehicle is. I've had a lot of conversations with our reporters where I've asked them in their pitch to their editors to also give us a good try, a good effort at their nut graph, which I also did not realize till recently. That's a very new concept from the Wall Street Journal in the 90s because a lot of our global team had no idea what a nut graph was because <laughs> they didn't write the right one. And I didn't realize that's a very American thing until until a couple of weeks ago. And so we've done a lot of practice on that. And I was like, you, we need to have a nut graph before we pitch it to anyone. So, we, so when our reporters come to our editors like Sophia, they will have a good idea of what they want to do and the the not just the idea but the story they want to tell then sophia will work with them to get into best shape and that's when we will probably bring in a partner and reach out and say hey you've done some great work together or this is a really important investigation we have these resources we can offer and that you know it was really great to partner with xyz person over there this is what i can do and so what what then will happen is that every partnership is a little bit different. Sometimes they'll say, that's great. They can file their first draft to you and I'll take a look at the final draft. I'll do the final edit and then we'll both sign off and off it goes on both websites and it's great. Some people will say, you know, we're really, really busy. We know you have a good copy editor. Can you just sort of do the final edit and copy edit and fact check and then we'll just post it up on our publication. So it just depends, but it takes, I would say for us, because we're partnering with another newsroom, it takes a lot of time, a lot of back and forth. We are very rigorous in our, in our reporting. So we have a fact checker and copy editor on staff. We will do for all the big investigations, we will do what any other newsroom like CNN does, where they have standards and practices, they have policies in place for legal review, for fact checking. And so, but what's great is that Sophia, and because we, us, because we as a newsroom don't have to focus on breaking news, we don't do breaking news, we can really focus on these long form, deep investigative stories that we do so well. And so Sophia can really dig in, for example, and really go through line by line, go through the reporters with the documents and all the data that we have if we're doing a data story. And really we work in tandem with the partner publication through the whole process. Sounds uh, like something that is uh, requires a lot of uh, teamwork, certainly. I want to go back to other jobs in your career. How did working in TV shape how you write for and edit print? It's a really good question. You know, I will say for anybody who I think nowadays there's a lot more overlap and back and forth between different platforms. But even when I um, made the shift from doing part TV and part writing at CNN, I had a lot of rejection from from a lot of publications telling me, well, no offense, but you're from TV. I don't think you can write. I don't know if you're going to be able to write. And what I will say is what's been really interesting, and I think what I tell a lot of, especially our younger journalists, is that working for t from TV, uh, working in TV, I'm able to think about color a lot. I don't know if people outside of journalism know what that means, but like, you know, if you read some of the best narrative and long form and feature reporting has a lot of what we call color, right? Like little details that you wouldn't know that make a story if you weren't sitting in that living room, if you weren't in that field, if you weren't outside, you know, watching this protest happen in real time. And so, you know, when I go, when I would go cover a story in print, I would think, okay, 
what what was all the work that the TV camera was do what the camera was doing for me that I didn't have to explain? What is it being like? Does that make sense? Like if there's a camera pointed at the scene, there's a lot of storytelling I don't have to do because it's doing all the work for me. So what is it now? Me sitting here, what is it that I want people to know that they cannot see? And so that was that was always my first thing when I would get somewhere. I would I would start talking into my phone, you know, about like all the color that I'm seeing. I would start taking notes, you know, even the way somebody was touching their face, the way that the color of their sofa. And I think honestly, that's been my biggest lesson. And then number two is, you know, you're going into, I think TV offers some kind of privilege in journalism. You get a lot of access, right? When that you might not get as a print reporter, no matter the name, because people think I'm going to be on TV. But so it, you also learn to be very respectful because you're also in some of the worst times of people's lives, you're pointing a camera into people's faces and asking them for a 20 second sound bite that might not sum up their whole story and that definitely will not sum up their whole story. And so, you know, it's taught me like that, you know, all of that stuff that takes a lot of setup, it takes a lot of patience and time. And so even when I was telling those stories on TV, I would go in before the reporter and the cameraman as the producer. And I would go in days before and make sure that there was a relationship there before we started reporting. And so it's taught me that as I, as I did my reporting, my long form reporting, for example, I went to Ohio for two weeks for the Guardian to report on the small town that's not even on a map that identifies that's that looks white, that is white, but identifies as black. And it's, it's a relic of racism and our history of enslaving people. And, but what people don't know is that that story, I was there for about a week before I started reporting. I spent from 7am until about 10pm at night in this like tiny town with like one road, just hanging out every day. I would just go and show up and talk to these families for four or five, six hours at a time, go house hop, and I think that's something that I, you know, that that patience that people don't realize that goes into breaking news and telling people stories that I really sort of, I've really held on to. One other uh, story that you worked on that I did want to touch on uh, more from the coverage of it than the story itself. Though I'm going to acknowledge the story itself. You, uh, you covered the Ahmad Aubrey uh, murder case and uh, a harrowing story, a frightening when I watched the video, certainly the, the reaction just, I can't even tell you. I'm curious about the experience of trying to cover something uh, like that as a reporter and what that's like. So, you know, last year we saw, we saw, we, we saw the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. While I was at CNN and before then, and at The Guardian, I spent a lot of time covering police brutality and police violence. And it never, you never get used to it, as I'm sure you know, as you said. And so it's just, again, you know, be going back to the fact that, you know, having to be extremely careful and kind and patient with people, you're also entering people's lives at the, probably the worst point in their lives, the death of a loved one, you know, on a very public forum. And as you can see, for no reason at all, and then no fault of that person. It's really hard. I, I, I think I'm just grateful that people are willing to talk to us every day, you know, and tell their stories. And you mentioned, well, let me think, I'm trying to think like, and I really think about those stories. I think what's really important about, I guess, even Ahmad Arbery or anybody else that I've covered is that those stories matter the days the print reporters and the TV reporters go away. I think a lot of people, you know, we cover them when they're sort of on the front page and then they go away. 
And what I've learned from that story and others is that three, five, seven years after these incidents happened, I went back to some families. I went back to the to mother and brother of a Marley Graham who was followed home. For example, as he was walking home from school in New York and police officers followed him back into his apartment and shot him because they thought he had a gun. I went to talk to Samaria Rice, who's the mother of Tamir Rice, a couple of years ago, because it's been a few years. I don't think, I think people have sort of, you know, everybody knows the name, but how are these families doing? How is this trauma affect their daily life? I went back to talk to Chance Crutcher's family. He was the man who was pulled over going to church or class. And it was the, I, I'm sure you remember it. It was in Oklahoma. There was a helicopter following his vehicle. There was like, there's been video of it. And then this female police officer shoots him. And so, you know, I, I'm thinking about these people years after I think about, you know, and, you know, and I hope, and that's how I look to cover these cases. And I hope that's how I'm instilling that same sort of rigor and sort of compassion in our reporters to also keep an eye on stories that maybe, hey, won't be part of the news cycle five, seven, nine, ten 10 days after, but that, or a year after, but please like keep an eye on it, you know, and that's sort of, that's what I've learned. A lesson for young reporters, certainly follow up. And speaking of that, let's uh, segue to the advice uh, portion of the podcast. What advice do you have for someone who wants to get into international reporting? And how would you go about it if you didn't know another language? I would learn a language. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> I would learn a language. Yep. I think, honestly, it's great to have, you know, it's great that there are reporters on the ground, local reporters that can support international reporting, but it's never going to be the same if you are not doing those interviews yourself or at least trying or making an effort at it. I would say also for a young reporter, if they're trying to do international reporting, do not treat those local reporters and people on the ground as support staff. They're your peers, you know, they're your, I, I would, I would almost treat them as mentors if they're willing to teach you, but it's not their job or responsibility, right? I think a lot of people, Western journalists sometimes can fall into the trap of going somewhere and using local reporters as fixers or as a crutch i would say one so that i would say partner and co-byline with local reporters if you're first starting out i would say learn the language as soon as possible maybe even before and then i would say just like you would in the u.s find that niche find that thing that nobody else is doing and really focus on that build your sources around that and you know the stories will come and the tips will come is there a gap in international reporting that a young reporter could look to fill? Oh, yeah, that's why we're here. Um, I would say there's just so much. I think, you know, a lot of a lot of reporting, especially for the U.S. and for European audiences, is, of course, from the viewpoint and vantage point of that audience, right? And so there are things happening that we just don't cover because, you know, there are many people probably, probably us included, you know, we're at fault too, where... If we're like, hmm, is there a U.S. angle? I, I found myself asking that question, you know, even when I was at CNN, I was like, hmm, what is the U.S. angle that will tie this back? And so, you know, one thing I would say is think about stories and how, and if you can tell a story that's borderless, if that makes sense, if it can be, if it's relevant, not just in the U.S. or somewhere in the U.K., but almost everywhere. I would say, I really think issues, obviously, that affect women are really don't, aren't told in depth across the world. And so... Almost honestly, I think childcare is a big issue. I think essential workers across the globe is going to be a big issue. Think about the stories that you that we would want to see that are underreported in the U.S. They're the same stories that need to be told globally. 
how do you interest someone in a topic that might not necessarily be initially accessible? To you? Give me an example. Do you have? A you had the one on your website about the brothels. So I think I think that's the one that Corinne did. She has been covering that specific particular location and story for a few years. I think one thing that's really interesting in that is that she was able to bring a global context to it where it wasn't just a beautifully told story, which it is, it's beautifully done. But what she does is she takes a lot of time in that story to explain the roots of, of sex work and, and, and the establishment of brothels in, in places like Bangladesh, which are the root of colonialism and British colonization and how they've sort of been established. And so I think, you know, and that was really easy then, of course, to bring home to The Economist magazine because, again, we were able to tie it back to the bigger picture and not just, I think, like a really nice and beautiful story. Okay, and last advice question to bring a moment of levity to this. You tweeted the other day that you learned about being a good manager from binging Ted Lasso. What advice do you have that you learned from Ted Lasso? Don't th you know, I don't think I've ever seen a manager that compassionate in in journalism i don't know about you but <laughs> nope. i don't think my boss has ever been that nice to me <laughs> ever in any job that i've ever had yep. it was really eye-opening to see you know you hear all the time that you you catch a lot of flies with honey and not vinegar and it was like yep this looks this looks about right and i think also something that i learned was hey if you bring people cookies every day they will eventually they will do whatever you need them to do. <laughs> They'll bring me a cookie or I'll bring you a cookie. All right, to wrap up, your organization's goals for 2021. More, we're going to go back to, you know, last year was hard. There, We did a lot of timely reporting that was, you know, I think the big stories were race, the pandemic, and politics. I think this year with the election having come to an end and with the new administration, really wanted to get back to that long-form investigative, deep reporting on some of the topics that we've talked about, immigration, healthcare, domestic violence, coronavirus, obviously, childcare. And so you'll be seeing a lot of work like that from us. Okay. And then lastly, I interrupted when you were talking about other people in your organization. So for our end of show salute, I, I will ask for two salutes. One was, is there anyone else in your organization that you wanted to salute? And two, is there another organization or someone outside of your organization that you would like to see? So within our organization, I would like to salute our reporter, Jessica Washington. We have actually never met face to face. We both started these jobs during a pandemic. And if you look at our website, you will see she has covered everything from childcare to reproductive health care to, to health care in general and from the vantage point of predominantly black and brown women. She's done a phenomenal job. She's probably the smartest young reporter I have ever worked with who is always willing to learn, even if I'm like, let's try your nut graph again. You know, she, I will, she will always try. And so I have to say, even through a pandemic, she's just, she's been a stellar colleague. And then in that vein, externally, I'm sure you know too, Mark, like the, the industry is tough, it's competitive, it's cutthroat. But recently I was really lucky when I got to speak to the editor-in-chief of the Marshall Project, Susan Chara, who's like, I, I think she's also a friend, um, a good friend of someone who had on recently, Jody Rorden. And I have to say, for somebody who has so much experience, who has who is so talented, who is known for her really, really great work. She's probably the nicest human being and the kindest editor 
and person I have ever met. And I just think there was just so much to learn from her that she took time out of her day to talk to a very young editor-in-chief, you know, and I had a lot of questions for her. And Susan was just probably the most magnanimous, like most kind, and obviously the most talented, one of the most talented people I've ever spoken to. And so just, you know, it, and I still think about her. And I think that conversation was a month ago. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. The Fuller Project is the award-winning global nonprofit newsroom dedicated to objective, groundbreaking reporting on women to raise awareness, expose injustice, and spur accountability. We are journalists guided by our own reporting experiences. Our correspondents in the U.S. and around the globe rigorously report on untold stories and the interconnected issues affecting women and their communities everywhere. A few things to point out. On the group's website, fullerproject.org, you can sign up for their newsletter, which both includes reporting and keeps you up to date on the stories they're doing. One other thing, if you search for Kushbu Shah on Google, that's K-H-U-S-H-B-U-S-H-A-H, there are actually two of them who are journalists. The other writes for food and wine. I've read her, and I recommend her piece on customer entitlement during the pandemic and the things that restaurant workers have had to deal with. She's a good journalist as well. A cap tip to Emmy Lederman for providing a couple of the advice questions that we used with our previous episode and reused here. We mentioned the Women's History Month lesson on Margaret Fuller. Here's Emmy with a salute to two other prominent women in journalism history. March is Women's History Month. And the Journalism Salute would like to pay tribute to Wendy Ruderman and Barbara Laker, two Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists who were fearlessly dedicated to exposing police corruption in Philadelphia, specifically the corruption in a narcotics squad, which fabricated drug busts and broke camera footage before looting small family-owned convenience stores. The book is a much-needed reminder of why investigative journalism matters. They are a force to be reckoned with. They hit the streets like, you know, they're on a mission to get information and they use up an awful lot of shoe leather in the process. The College of New Jersey journalism professor Emily Lounsbury assigns their book Busted, a tale of corruption and betrayal in the city of brotherly love, to students in her media ethics class every year. I mean, they just are unstoppable and they knew what they wanted and they kept pursuing documents as well as interviews and, you know, developed a lot of sources who could help guide them along the way. They basically utilized every every tool in their journalism toolbox in order to pursue the story. I'm Emmy Lederman. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who ran the journalism program at Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. What Dr. Cole did was he gave me confidence. Pete Croato, who graduated in 2001, did not have the start to his career that he hoped for. After feeling lost and unsure of himself, he received a note from Dr. Cole in the mail, 
which now sits in a frame on his desk. The part that particularly speaks to him reads, Most journalists are not good writers and do not recognize good writing. They will praise you for adopting journalese as your alternative to English. So don't let those guys bug you. They will just be a passing part of your life. You won't remember them in a few years, but you must not forget good writing. Probably the most important piece of correspondence I've, I've got, you know, 43, so think of all the emails, cards, letters you know, that you get in your life. During his time at the college, Corrado never had a particular interest in covering student government meetings, but there was something about the way that Cole taught that made him want to cover any story, no matter the topic, with the utmost curiosity and journalistic integrity. His enthusiasm for getting the for getting details right, for doing the job correctly, made me want to cover those meetings like it was Watergate or the seventh game of the World Series or some natural disaster. I'm Emmy Lederman, College of New Jersey, Class of 2021. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.